You can take a copy of our Confession of Faith and open it to chapter 28. We begin a new chapter, and really the next three chapters are going to be similar, 28, 29, and 30, all dealing with the, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know that it's exciting when the the person in the front of the room brings books from home because the quotes that he's going to read are so long that he didn't feel like typing them out. So hopefully you're excited about that. Um, as I was preparing the material for this lesson, I finished typing out what I wanted to say for the first paragraph, and I had a decision to make. I could either cover paragraph two and risk going longer than I like to go on Sunday evenings. I, I try to keep the service within about an hour. Uh, or I could cover paragraph two so fast that it, I wouldn't be able to really cover the argument that I wanted to make for it. Or I could break up the material into two reasonable length lectures. And so I've chosen the third one. So we're just going to cover the first paragraph. Um, this evening will be... Uh, probably about average length, and the next week might be quite a bit shorter. Um, let me begin by reading these two paragraphs of chapter 28, and then we'll, we'll pray. Paragraph 1 says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in His church to the end of the world. Paragraph 2, These holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump in here. Father, I pray that you, would, that you would bless our time together, that you'd help us to understand the teaching of your word. I pray that you would give us a high view of, of these things that you've commanded us to perform in your church. I pray that you'd help us to be more securely fastened to the foundation of truth in your word, that we would see a biblical basis for why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe, and that each of us would come to a, a conviction about these things. Lord, it's good for several of us to have a conviction and to be able to teach, but it's even better that we all come to our own conviction from the truth of the word of God. And so that's what we desire to see you do for us this week and in the coming weeks. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. So what I want to do by way of introduction is say some things that I said way back when we began chapter 26 of our confession. That chapter dealt with the church. It's the longest chapter in our confession. We are a Baptist church though it's not in the name, and that's incredibly offensive to some people that you wouldn't put Baptist in the, the name of the church. We are a Baptist church. We're not a non-denominational church. And I, I talked in that opening week about you know, how we talk to other people, and when we tell people or if they ask, 
what kind of a church we go to and we say that we are part of a Baptist church, we understand that they might have some pictures in their mind about what that means. They might have some assumptions about what that means. But we, most of us from experience, realize that what they probably assume or imagine is not really what we're trying to convey when we say that we attend a Baptist church. Because the broad majority of, of Baptist churches in our area are of a, a certain ilk, and we are just a little bit different. But nonetheless, we are a Baptist church. If you felt like you, could, you wanted to be more specific, you could say that we are a Reformed Baptist church. While some people disagree altogether that, that Baptists can have any claim to the title Reformed, um, nonetheless, it's still true. If someone says, okay, I, I, I don't know what that means, though. What, what is a Reformed Baptist church? I've never heard that. You could go further and say that we are Reformed in our theology and we're Baptist in our ecclesiology. To say we are Reformed, to summarize, it means that our doctrine, all of our doctrine, begins and ends with God. I think that's a good way to put Reformed theology. Everything that we believe begins and ends with God as, it was, as, as that biblical theology was rediscovered during the Reformation uh, period. And we are Baptist, which means that all of our practice as a church begins and ends with God's Word. And we disregard all inventions of men in worship. Now, I think we would expect that anybody who held the title Reformed would also agree with that. They would say, well, we, we all reject all of the inventions of men when it comes to the worship of God. I think it's ultimately up to the student of Scripture and experience to determine who's actually being faithful to that claim that we reject every invention of man as it, is, uh, as it intrudes upon the church and the worship of God. We are Baptist in our ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, the study of the church, what the church does, what the church exists for, who makes up the church. And so we are Baptist in our doctrine of the church and all that the church does as the church. Now, because the term Baptist obviously alludes to the practice of baptism, many people think that being a Baptist only refers to the act of baptism and what we believe about who goes in the water and how much water. Now, being a Baptist does refer to more than our belief about the baptismal waters. It, it doesn't refer to less than that. It's not, uh, it's not anything less than... That. It does include what we believe about baptism. It has implications to the practice of baptism. But baptism falls under a broader category. If we want to think of ecclesiology as the doctrine of the church, well, under ecclesiology there would be another subcategory that we would call sacramentology. And baptism falls under sacramentology, the study or uh, our doctrine of the sacraments. The two sacraments of the New Testament church, we believe, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And chapter 28 of our confession is giving us an introduction to Baptist sacramentology. And it lays the groundwork for the next two chapters. Chapter 29 is going to deal with baptism. Chapter 30 is going to deal with the Lord's Supper. But here we just have an introduction to both of them, Baptist sacramentology. Now, for the sake of... Sticking to the language of our confession, I'm going to call the sacraments ordinances 
And the first thing that we're going to address here is the difference between those terms. So, we're covering another distinctive of Baptist ecclesiology, beginning with a summary regarding the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. First main heading that we see in paragraph 1 is the divine source of these ordinances. The divine source of these ordinances. And first notice the label that is given to these ordinances. The confession reads, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances. So that brings us straight into the discussion of whether or not we should use the term sacraments or ordinances to refer to these two things. Now, if you've never heard of this debate and this is brand new to you, then this, this will be a little informative. I, I was listening to a podcast all the way over here where uh, a man who is a pastor of a Baptist church alluded to uh, some uh, denominations that are more sacramental in their worship. And I, I, I thought, well, I need you to explain that because I, I think that I'm sacramental. So what do you mean? What does that mean? The term ordinance, and I'm using Webster's 1828 dictionary, is a rule established by authority. An ordinance is a rule established by authority or an observance commanded. That's an ordinance. It's something commanded to be done by an authority, an ordinance. And in that dictionary, he even references Hebrews 9.1, which says, reading the ESV, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. In the King James, it's rendered ordinances. Even the first covenant had ordinances for worship, things, and the word there means things required in order to, to satisfy the, the, the demands of God. Things required for righteousness. Even the first covenant had things that God commanded that had to be done if they were to be considered obedient people. Ordinances, things commanded. And so the term ordinance, if we're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, that simply refers to the fact that these two things are commanded by God to be done in the church by Christ the head of the church. That's what we mean by an ordinance. Now, you hear that, that, that definition, things commanded to be done, we would say, well, aren't there more things to be commanded than just those two? The answer is yes. And that's why when you read many authors, they, they almost equate synonymously ordinances with means of grace, the things that are commanded to be done in the church. Now, the term sacrament. Sacrament means a sacred thing or a holy thing. So when we refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments, according to the definition of the word, that means that these things are holy things, holy observances or sacred observances. They're not for common use. They're not practiced out in what we would call the common kingdom. They are exclusive to the holy kingdom, the church. We don't go to Walmart and practice the Lord's Supper. We don't go to the to a restaurant and baptize people. These are things to be performed in and by the church. That's what people mean by sacraments, holy things, kingdom, holy kingdom rites, we might call them. Now some people shy away from the use of the term sacrament, especially if they've come out of a Roman Catholic background because, because Rome has added so much to that word and that terminology and so much false theology around baptism and the Lord's Supper that when they hear the term sacrament, they immediately think of all of those additional things that are not in Scripture. And they say, well, we don't want to use the word sacrament because it means that. Well, no, that's not true. 
The word sacrament has a meaning. Some people may misuse the term. They may misdefine it, but that doesn't mean they, they now own the word and they can take it as they, and use it as they please. We just have to come back and work to clarify what we mean. We don't mean what Rome means. When we call them sacraments, we mean these are holy things, holy kingdom rites that are, be, that are to be performed in the church, and they're commanded by God. So are they ordinances? Yes. Are they sacraments? Yes. Someone might ask then, well, why is the term sacrament not used in our confession? Were the Baptists intentionally anti-sacramental in their views of baptism and the Lord's Supper? And I would say no. They preached, they wrote, they spoke about baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments. They, they used the term outside of the confession. So we know it wasn't because they didn't believe in the use of the word. Why didn't they use the term then? Well, we might could say, well, they wanted to avoid confusion with Rome. That's one thing, although I kind of doubt that because they use the term in other places. More than likely, the reason that they don't use the term sacrament is because in the teaching of the confession itself, the meaning of sacrament is given without using the word. In other words, I've just spent all this time defining sacrament. Now, if I didn't say, well, we're not going to talk about uh, or I'm not going to use the word sacrament if I just said, we're going to talk about the holy rites of the church, the holy things commanded for the church to perform, you would say, okay, I understand that. Well, that, that's just defining the word sacrament without saying the word sacrament. <clears throat> it seems that rather than use the word and assume its meaning would be understood, they give the meaning and explanation without the word. For example, look at paragraph 2. These holy appointments. What is Sacred, sacrament, holy, holy thing, ordinance, appointment, things commanded. It's the same, same idea, it's just, they're just using different words. The concept is clearly stated here without using the word. So I think it would be a fallacy to say, well, since the word is not there, then the concept can't be there. They, they clearly held to the use of the term sacrament. I'm going to read to you now from the first little book. This is, this is called Amidst Us Our Beloved Stands. Recovering Sacrament in Baptist Tradition by a man named Michael Haken. He says, Neither of the two most important particular Baptist confessions of the 17th century, the first London Confession of Faith and the second London Confession of Faith, neither of them use the term sacrament. Although signatories of these confessions occasionally used this noun from time to time and did so unapologetically. William Kiffin who signed both of these confessions and can rightly be regarded as the father of the particular Baptist community, described baptism on one occasion as the sacrament of the spiritual birth. Keach, quoting the Arminian theologian Daniel Tillinus, stated without qualification that, quote, baptism is the first sacrament of the New Testament in which there is an exact analogy between the sign and the thing signified. And in his Baptist, Baptistic adaptation of the Heidelberg Catechism, Hercules Collins used this term a number of times in the section of the sacraments. For instance, Collins stated that, quote, "...the sacraments are sacred signs and seals set before our eyes and ordained of God for this cause, that He may declare and seal by them the promise of His gospel unto us." that He giveth freely remission of sins and life everlasting, not only to all His in general, but to every one in particular that believeth, and that only 
and for that only sacrifice of Christ which He accomplished on the cross. The point of that being, these, these men use the term sacrament. The fact that it's not here doesn't mean Baptists don't believe in sacramentology or holy things. We do. So if you want to use the term sacrament, use the term sacrament. You want to use the term ordinance, use the term ordinance. Although I do think that the term ordinance is a, a broader term, a broader idea. So that's, the, that, that's enough about the label. Sacraments, ordinances, and the definition of those words. Next, <clears throat> in the confession, we have a reference to the legality of these ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. And I'm going to focus down here a little bit because this is, to me, this is very, very important to understand. By legality, I mean, how do these ordinances fit into the code of divine law? Legality. And we have two words used. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. Positive institution... Sovereign institution. Now let's take that first word, positive. It's a reference to what we have, we've called positive law. We learned about this specifically when we studied chapter 22 on the Sabbath. But before we even got there, I'm going to read to you several places from our confession. Chapter 6, paragraph 1 makes a reference to Adam who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of his creation and the command given unto him or them. He broke the law of creation and he broke the command given to them. Well, what was that command? The command was, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the command. So there was a law of creation and it was, we, we would say, a positive law, a law, think of a positive sign, added to that. That was not a part of creation. There was a law written on his heart that we would call the moral law, the same law that we see codified in the, on the, in the Ten Commandments. And then there was an additional commandment. Don't eat of that tree. It's stated more plainly in chapter 9, paragraph 1. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating of the free, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That particular precept is what we call a positive law. It's added to the natural or moral law. Then we came to paragraph 7 of chapter 22. As it is a law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, Binding all men, etc. It goes on to explain the doctrine of the Sabbath. There we have the law of nature, which we would call the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And then we have what is called a positive moral, a, a law that is a mixture of moral precept and positive precept. Natural or moral law says some time needs to be set apart for the worship of God. That's written on us by nature. We ought to devote some of our time to worshiping God because we're creatures and He's God. The positive part of that is how much time and when. And that positive precept can be changed. It's a positive moral law, the, the, the Sabbath commandment. So let's consider positive law as it is 
set in distinction from natural or moral law. Moral laws or natural laws come from the nature of God and the nature of man as creature. In other words, because God is who He is, and because we are who we are, this law is natural. It's written on us as creatures. It is obligatory on all men. It, it, is, it is binding. Its, its bedrock is the nature of God. It's moral or natural. Moral laws are written upon the hearts of all men in some sense, to some degree. That, that writing can be defaced, it can be suppressed, but it's still written there. Those are moral laws. An example would be, you shall not murder. Every human being knows from their birth that they, they are not to murder. They know that. Nobody has to teach us not to murder. We, we know that is, is a... Uh, a precept written on our hearts by our Creator. Positive laws, on the other hand, again, are laws added to that moral law or natural law. Positive laws are never natural. They're never moral. They're never just based on who God is and who we are in themselves. Positive laws are never written on the heart like moral laws. Some examples of positive laws would again be, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Now there was nothing moral or natural about that command, except God said it. And because God said it, it, was, it became binding. Beyond that, if God hadn't said it, it would have been no big deal. Eat of any tree you want to. It's, it, there's... There's no rule written on us about eating of that particular tree. Another positive law, circumcise your offspring, the command that God gave to Abraham. There's nothing moral or natural about that. Nobody comes out of the womb saying, I, I think this is something we should do. But because God commanded it to Abraham and to his offspring, therefore it became obligatory upon them. Only because God commanded it. If he would have said something different, if he would have given another thing besides circumcision, shave off the right side of the, the hair on the right side of your head. That would have been the, the, the law. They would have to, had to abide by that merely because God commanded it. Another positive law: sacrifice a male lamb one year old without blemish. That's a positive law. God could have chosen any animal. He could have chosen any age. He could have said full of blemishes. But he didn't. He said a male, one year old, without blemish. And we know from Scripture the, the reason for those was typological. It's pointing to something else. Another positive law. Wash yourself with water containing the ashes of a burned red heifer. Well, there's nothing natural or moral about that written on man's hearts. There's nothing more uh, righteous about the ashes of a red heifer than the ashes of a brown heifer, a black heifer, a black and white heifer. But God said red heifer. Therefore, red heifer is now binding or was binding upon those people. What the confession is saying is the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are of positive institution. They're not natural. Nobody, nobody just says to themselves by nature, we should be shoving each other underwater. We should be taking bread and wine and drinking it all the time. No, that's, we, we only know of it because God said to do it. And that leads us to these conclusions about positive laws. Number one, no single detail of a positive law 
is ever left to the imagination of men with regard to positive laws. God didn't come to Adam and say, don't eat of a tree. I'll let you decide which one. No, He said, that tree. Don't eat that tree. God didn't say to Abraham, circumcise some of your offspring, but I'll let you decide which ones. Or He didn't say, Abraham, you've got a flint knife there. Just get to cutting something. I'll let you decide what it is. No, He told him exactly what to do. You go on down the line. No single detail is ever left to the imagination of men with regard to positive laws. Secondly, the, the, the opposite side of that would be positive laws are always only ever known by a clear, unambiguous, unmistakable, indisputable word from the mouth of God. Or else we would never know what they are. That's the only way that we know them is because God has given us I use a thesaurus here to just stack up words. Clear, unambiguous, unmistakable, indisputable word. That's the only way we know it. <clears throat> now I'm going to quote from some other men because I want to show you that this is in fact the unanimous understanding of Christians with regard to positive laws and specifically how those positive laws apply to the sacraments. I know how much you like to be read to, so here, I'll read you some. This is from Dr. Doddridge. I'm assuming Philip Doddridge. Those are called positive institutions or precepts which are not founded upon any reasons known to those whom they are given or discoverable by them, but which are observed merely because some superior has commanded them. That's a positive law. Bishop Taylor. All institutions, sacramental and positive laws, depend not upon the nature of the things themselves, according to the extension or diminution of which our obedience might be measured, but they depend wholly on the will of the lawgiver and the will of the supreme. Being actually limited to this specification, this manner, this matter, this institution, whatever comes besides, it hath no foundation in the will of the legislator and therefore can have no warrant or authority." It can only be rooted in what the lawgiver says. A Mr. Reeves, what then are positive laws? Why, what we know to be the will of God by His express word only. He goes on to say, by a positive command, I understand an express declaration made by competent authority, whether concerning things to be done or omitted. John Owen Positive institutions are the free effects of the will of God depending originally and solely on revelation. Only on revelation. Dr. J.G. King, positive duties have no obligation in the reason of things, can have no foundation but in the express words of the institutor from which alone they derive their authority. In other words, they only have authority because God said them. The authority said them and we wouldn't know of them if the authority hadn't said them. A Bishop Burnett, sacraments are positive precepts which are to be measured only by the institution in which there is not room left for us to carry them any further. In other words, only by what's been given, no more, no less. Mr. Steele, sacraments depend merely upon their institution, hence doth their being result, and upon this their matter and signification do depend. The institution with the element makes the sacrament. 
And so the only rule and balance for them must needs be their institution. They're, they're, given, or they're being given by the lawgiver. A Dr. Goodman. Now it is very evident that all things of this nature ought to be appointed very plainly and expressly, or else they can carry no obligation with them. For, seeing the whole reason of their becoming matter of law or duty lies in the will of the legislator, if that be not plainly discovered, they cannot be said to be instituted. And so there can be no obligation to observe them. Here's a name I can't pronounce. This is the most certain principle that the sacraments are nothing except from their institution, and this institution must be divine. Whatever, therefore, was invented by man does not belong to a sacrament. The use of the sacraments depends upon their institution. Nothing belongs to the institution of the Lord's Supper that is not essential to it. If the whole essence of the sacrament be of divine institution, certainly that being violated, the sacrament itself cannot stand. One Gerhardus, seeing that a sacrament depends entirely upon the appointment of God, when we do not what God has appointed, it certainly will not be a sacrament. This is a Bishop Hoadley, last, last person. All positive duties or duties made such by institution alone depend entirely upon the will and declaration of the person who institutes or ordains them with respect to the real design and end of them and consequently to the due manner of performing them. For there being no other foundation for them with regard to us but the will of the institutors, this will must of necessity be our sole direction, both as to our understanding their true intent and practicing them accordingly. In other words, positive commands are always expressly stated, never deduced. And then he says later, it is plain therefore that the nature, the design, and the due manner of partaking of the Lord's Supper must of necessity depend upon what Jesus Christ, who instituted it, hath declared about it. So those are, those are some other voices who don't necessarily agree with us on other parts of sacramentology. But they agree. Sacraments are positive laws. You, you, you heard several of them referencing the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, because those were quotes taken from those men, Reformed, arguing against papists about their abuse of the Lord's Supper, to which the Baptists respond, now do baptism. They don't go that far. As it pertains to baptism and the Lord's Supper, as they are not a part of natural law but positive, then no part of their institution or observance can find its source in anything besides a clear, expressed precept from the Word of God. Now here's an example. In our church not too long ago, we had a discussion over the, the elements of the Lord's Supper and the use of wine in the Lord's Supper. Most of us, I think, grew up in... Uh, if we grew up in church, it was Baptist churches, and in most Baptist churches in this area, there's, the wine is not used in the Lord's Supper. It's always grape juice. And the, the reasoning was this. Well, if we're going to do what God has commanded, and God commands the use of wine, well, then I have a conviction, certain people had convictions, that we ought to use wine. That's what he says. Now, even in that argument, nowhere in the institution of the Lord's Supper is the word wine used. It's the fruit of the vine. Okay, so 
We hear that. We also know certain things about what those men were doing that evening in the upper room. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Well, you don't get drunk on Welch's. You don't get drunk on Pepsi. What's the, what, what, is, what could be the fruit of the vine that people get drunk off of? Oh, I know. It's wine. Right? That's the argument. The Scriptures seem to imply and institute wine at the Lord's table. Therefore, what should we do? Well, we should use wine at the Lord's table. That was, that's the argument. That was the discussion. And, and it goes both ways, really. There are a lot of people who are really sticklers about the word wine, even though, again, that term is not used in the institution itself. Many are sticklers about the word wine with regard to the Lord's Supper, but they're not quite so tedious about the word baptism in, the, in that ordinance, which means immersion. Put them under the water. And many who would argue vociferously that baptism means immersion and wine means grape juice. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You've probably heard inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. I would say inconsistency is very often the sign of white-knuckling a tradition. I will not let it go. Well, you're not being consistent. Yeah, but it's inconsistent. Now, we, we do all have to come to conviction of these things from the Scriptures. The point that I want to make here is that there, this general doctrine or concept of positive law and how that applies to the sacraments, that's agreed on across the board. All, all of the, the Reformed, we could, we could say Baptists, we could say the Reformed, and anybody, everybody who fits under that category, Presbyterians, etc., etc., we could go to Anglicans, we could go to Roman Catholics, we could go to Lutherans. They all agree, if they've written on positive law, they all say positive law means this. Institution, express commands, no more, no less. And then we say, all right, now let's then begin to apply this to the sacraments, and let's see who's being consistent in their arguments. But they agree. This is, this is the, the, the teaching on the concept of a positive law. Positive laws are not natural. They're not moral. They exist only by the express command of God. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are of positive institution. Therefore, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be conducted only according to the express command of God. Not inference, not tradition, not logical deduction from covenant theology, not even the, by practice and example alone. There were some who came to America and took the Baptist confession that we use, made some changes, and added the ordinance of foot washing. Why? Well, Jesus washed the feet of His disciples. But was that meant to be an institution? That's the question. Was that meant to be uh, an ordinance of the church, or was that simply what He did? Express words and commands only. That's what is meant by positive institution. The other, other word is sovereign. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of sovereign institution. That is, they are appointed by the one who rules over the church sovereignly, which leads to the next portion of our confession. The legislator of these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only 
lawgiver. So the legislator of these ordinances is Christ Himself. He's the lawgiver. The head of the church legislates what happens in His church. Now we could ask, how does He legislate? How do we know what His laws are? Well, the answer is from His Word. We open up the Scriptures. We see what He has to say. How does He legislate positive laws? By express commands from His Word. Now, I think it's interesting if we consider what's being done here. Christ as the only lawgiver. We know that Moses mediated a law. Moses delivered a law. But it was, it was ultimately Christ who gave that law. But that law is very often referred to as the law of Moses. So you, could, you can picture the, the Israelites would speak often of Moses as their lawgiver. The Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, they sat in Moses' seat. What does that mean? Well, that means that they were the teachers of the law that was mediated through Moses. So we have sort of a contrast between Moses as a lawgiver and Christ as a lawgiver, even though we know ultimately God is the one who gives all these laws. But think about that. If that law, regarding the positive institutions of ceremonial worship, was so intricate that God even told them what kind of metal to use for the bases of the stands that would hold up the curtains and what kind of pegs to put in the ground and how many rings to put in the curtains, do we think that Christ is going to come along and be less clear about the ordinances of His church? That He's going to be ambiguous or confusing about what we ought to do regarding the sacraments of the New Testament church? It would be as if to say... God told Moses to put blood on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of Aaron and his sons in order to consecrate them as priests. But we can't for the life of us figure out what we're supposed to drink at the Lord's Supper or who we're supposed to baptize. That's absurd. That's saying Christ is less clear than Moses was clear. I think what they're getting at is, no, Christ is a better lawgiver, a more clear lawgiver. He, the lawgiver is Christ, the head of the body, and the good shepherd of His people. Any legislator, and I, I, I took this argument from that book I was just quoting from, any legislator on earth that handed down a law or tried to get a law passed through Congress, or whoever passes laws, that could potentially mean three different things and could potentially require three different actions from people would be considered evil. You're trying to pass a wicked law or you are so useless at, at writing laws, you're fired. We, we don't want you to be a lawmaker if you can't write a clear law. It, it is a staple of legislators that the law has to be clear or it can't be enforced. Do we think that Christ is a, is, is a worse lawmaker than earthly lawmakers, earthly legislators? I don't think so. Christ is the lawgiver and Christ is good. There's no ambiguity in any positive precept or institution whatsoever, including the sacraments of the New Testament. I would argue it's perfectly clear based on the institution and the clear teaching of Scripture. Then we see the lifespan of these ordinances. 
the lifespan. These are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in His church to the end of the world. That is, Christ said, do these things until I return. That's how long they last. And now we get to the Scripture references. The first dealing with baptism is Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. You can look there or you can listen. I know that we know this text very well. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here we have Christ, the lawgiver, giving His law. He's giving the, the command. And He says to do this, and He says that we will do this with His promised presence until the end of the age. Now we know that disciple-making is going to come to an end when Christ returns. Teaching will come to an end when Christ returns. There will be no more bapti baptizing when Christ, after Christ returns. Until then... We make disciples and we baptize them. And then the next passage is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, which deals with the Lord's Supper. We know this well. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we say often, when we come to the Lord's table, we're doing two things. We're looking backward at the death of Christ and what He accomplished for us. We're remembering His death, His bloodshed for our sins. And we're also looking forward to the time when this sacrament comes to an end, until He returns. We proclaim His death until He returns. We keep doing it over and over and over, looking forward to the day when He returns. And we know from Scripture that when Christ returns, what we call the Lord's Supper will give way to what is, has been called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we read in Scripture, Christ says at the institution of the Lord's Supper, that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it again, or drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This will give way to that. In Luke, it, there's even the parable that says he will, he will dress Himself for service and we will recline at table and He will serve us. These things we do as a church until Christ returns. So then in conclusion, these ordinances are for our good. And our Lord would not have commanded them to be done if they weren't for our good. We would have never come to them on our own. Again, we would have never got together and said, I think we need to shove each other underwater. How about a little cup of wine and some bread? We would, have never, we would have never concluded that that should be done except He told us. But that He told us lets us know it's a good thing. Therefore, our good. Since we believe this, that God is good and He's commanded these things for our good, then we need to approach the sacraments and the study of the sacraments with that in mind. I'm studying something that God has given to me for my good. 
too often historically the sacraments have been simply those things which section off the church into denominations. You know, so, and I've, I've joked about this before. If somebody says, we're a non-denominational church, do you baptize babies? Well, no. Okay, well, you're not non-denominational. You're not Presbyterian. You're not Methodist. You're not Lutheran. You're not Anglican. Like, you, you, you're, you're, you've, you've got a corner of a market somewhere. Who do you baptize? Well, people who get saved. Well, you're, now you're leaning towards another. You see, we just divide off the church based on how people do the sacraments. It's more than that. We need to see these things as the ordinances of the church given by Christ for our growth and grace. It's not just, here's what makes me a Baptist, but here's what Christ has given me for our good, for my good. They're meant to put Christ and His work before our eyes. And I will say that I believe that there are some views of the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, that don't do that. They don't actually really put Christ and His work before the eyes of the people. They revolve around the people. We have to be careful to avoid that trap. These things have been given to us by Christ, our sovereign Lord, the only lawgiver, to be continued in His church to remember His work until He returns. It's about Him. So we baptize somebody. Yes, we're... we're, we're displaying something of the, the person being baptized, but ultimately we're saying, look at what Christ has done. Look at the, look at the burial. Look at the resurrection. We take the Lord's Supper. Yes, it, we're say, it's saying something about us here, but what we're saying is we here need to look at what Christ has done, His body, His blood. It's about Him. So let's close in prayer, and we'll sing together.